Okay. Let's hope it's not another disaster. Uh, I'll, we'll keep watching for what you're writing so that maybe we can bring you on a happy story. Yeah. And I'll look for one, too. Yeah. Opening the Gordy Howe Bridge. Maybe we can do that. That'll be... <laughs> gotta be something. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome to Canusa Street. We've got such an interesting conversation happening today, Chris. Uh, we're going to talk about Afghanistan and not just how we got in, but how we got out of Afghanistan. And, and it's kind of been, in some ways, one of the defining issues of the Canada-U.S. relationship over the last 20 years, don't you think? I, I think so. First, because it was the it was the fight that Canada took on instead of Iraq, and it was always sort of put in that context. It was a it was a NATO mission, so it involved other countries and sort of touched on that multilateralism. But um, for all of the the thought that went into getting Canada involved and all the history there, just watching the evacuation from Kabul, I think a lot of Americans and a lot of Canadians were just shocked. And the images that we have from that uh, from that evacuation, I think, will be with us a long time. Well, not just the images, Chris. I agree, but also the repercussions. I mean, we're talking about resettling refugees, and we're talking about what happens to women and girls in a country that we spent and uh, part of the world we spent a lot of time fighting for. You know, think about what does Malala think? Maybe we should invite her to the podcast to talk to talk to us actually um, about that. So. So it's still, it's, it's, this is going to be the, the aftermath of this is going to be, um, is going to continue. It's not just academic, but it's what's really happening to real people, um, coming out of Afghanistan into Canada, the United States and the rest of the world, but also the, the people that still live there. Well, and, and I think that's why I'm, I'm looking forward to this episode because for so many Canadians, whether it was Lebanon or other parts of the world, when something went down, they, could expect the U.S. would help get Canadians out of there. And Canada, of course, had taken its troops already out of Afghanistan. So when this happened, I think they were unprepared, but they were also um, relying on that sense of a safety blanket, a, a, an American backup plan that would keep them covered. And it wasn't it wasn't there. And it wasn't withdrawn because we're mad at Canada. It just we we didn't have our act together either. But I think when you talk about repercussions, this idea of maybe relying on the U.S. and not spending money on defense and not spending money on some of these other things is something we need to reevaluate in Canada. So I, I think in that sense, the repercussions have policy implications that will be with us for, for a while. That's exactly right. And, you know, the, the other thing is there are people that we don't think about a lot, but the, the storytellers, the news reporters that actually help us understand what's going on. We're, we're really fortunate today Um to have someone who knows a lot about the Canadian involvement, the U.S. involvement um, in Afghanistan and has been writing about it, has done a lot of advocacy work. Uh, and I'll let you introduce him properly, Chris, but but I'm I'm very honored that Kevin Newman uh, has agreed to join us today because he, you know, sometimes we forget that that uh, people covering these intense stories are are also living them. Right. So uh, Kevin has a very interesting point of view. Yeah, I'm excited about that, too. Let's get on with the interview.
Well, we're really pleased to have as our guest on Canusa Street this week, uh, Kevin Newman. And one of the things about this podcast is, of course, we're we're trying to explain a lot of what's going on in Canada to an American audience. And uh, Kevin's been doing that for quite a while because Canadians will know him because he was with CTV National News. He was a global national. But of course, he also has an extensive career and credits working with American media, having uh, been, I think, with ABC News, uh, having been with World News Tonight when that was a program, uh, doing Good Morning America. Uh, you're a household name on both sides of the border, Kevin, and it's great to have you. But the particular reason that we wanted to reach out was that uh, after watching the withdrawal from Kabul and just the heartrending photos and what we all saw, uh, you really stepped up, I think, to offer a critique um, and really a more focused critique. Everyone was very concerned about what was happening and how was it happening. But you, you actually have been following the story for a while. And I think you made a very astute, but also very direct charge that there's responsibility on both sides, the United States, but also on Canada. So uh, how do you see that uh, having unfolded? And, and, and if you could reprise some of that uh, critique, I would love to share that with our listeners. Sure, Chris. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting me on the podcast today. So um, I was part of an ad hoc group of uh, veterans, journalists, aid workers that sort of sprung into action when it became clear that the Taliban was marching toward uh, regaining power in Afghanistan. And uh, the reason that we came together was because at the time, the Canadian government had no immigration system in place uh, to rapidly uh, remove them from Afghanistan or to, or, or, or to consider that they were a special case at all. So, um, you know, dial back to, you know, President Trump's um, agreement with the Taliban on how the f subsequent year would take place and American troops would be withdrawn. It was pretty clear to a lot of people that once the American troops came out of Afghanistan, and there weren't that many there at the time, you know, maybe 2,500, 4,500, that that would be a perilous time for anybody who had worked alongside um, uh, Canadian and U.S. military, journalists, non-government organizations, development agencies, uh, because the Taliban had made it very clear the first time they were in power that anybody who collaborated with Western powers um, was a target, and many of them paid for it with their lives. So as soon as it was clear that the American military was intent on leaving because of the agreement with the Taliban, it should have been clear to the Canadian government and the American government for that matter, that there were a whole lot of people who would suddenly have targets on their backs. And without America there, and America was the last of the allies to be there, Canada left in 2014, that their lives could be in danger, but nothing was done. And so when events started to ramp up, when the Taliban made it obvious that they were ready to take over various cities in Afghanistan, the response of the Canadian government at the time was, um, well, they can apply for immigration like anybody else. Now, as someone who was an immigrant once to the United States <laughs> and anybody who's trying to get into Canada will tell you, that takes months. It takes sure. a lot of money and lawyers. Um, and so going through the regular process didn't seem to be something that would fit um, the circumstances of these interpreters and these local workers who had worked uh, on, on, on behalf of uh, Western countries. 
And it just wasn't practical. So anyway, long story short, this group of us got together and started advocating for a process to bring those people over quicker. There had been one in Canada uh, that was mothballed in 2016. And um, the government took a month um, to come up with one and then announced one finally. And so at that point, we thought, okay, our work is done. Um, the thing is in place. It'll all go well. But then very quickly, it became clear that the Canadian government and the immigration ministry in particular was not prepared to move fast enough, given the way that, you know, events were were unfolding in Afghanistan and that, you know, at least 2000 interpreters who would work for the Canadian military and their families on top of that would be in peril very quickly. And my critique was basically that um, we weren't moving fast enough and that in not moving fast enough and not realizing that the um, uh, events on the ground were moving quickly, uh, we were consigning these people to the possibility of certain death. That's very, the way you lay it out is powerful. And, and to be clear, I think um, Donald Trump announced the U.S. would be leaving. His deal with the Taliban was May of 2020. Um, then there was perhaps some uncertainty as to whether he would win the election and they'd follow through, whether his successor, now, once we learned it was going to be Joe Biden, would carry on. Do you, think, do you think that transfer of power created uncertainty that may have stalled the ability to act on this? Or do you think that should have nonetheless been something, a contingency Canada planned for? Uh, it should have been a contingency that Canada planned for, frankly. Um, and they did, uh, but only for the staff of the embassy in Kabul. So as of March, the global affairs in Canada had a contingency plan for how they would evacuate the embassy. That told us that they knew that that was a possibility and that they planned for it, but they only felt that their responsibility was to the staff of the embassy. There was nobody who believed or was advocating that we're aware of that there was a larger and a broader responsibility to people who had helped in the military mission there. Um, and so, uh, and then when the Bagram Air Base uh, suddenly was closed a month ahead of the deadline for America leaving, and it seems that America, you know, surprised the Afghan government even with that move, right. uh, that's when we thought, uh-oh, um, there's a void. There's a, there's a void that's just been created. And as, as reporters, as military veterans, and as aid agencies, we all came to the same conclusion that as soon as there's a void, the Taliban's going to fill it. And, sure. um, and, and that's, it turns out, ended up what, ha what, what happened. Was, was there maybe uh, an expectation that the U.S. would play a bigger role? I know after... Um, uh, in Lebanon, I think there was a period of time where there were a lot of dual citizens in Lebanon. I think there had been an earthquake or a big explosion and the U.S. kind of helped get Canadians out. Do you think there was a sort of complacency in Ottawa on the expectation the Americans would, of course, help uh, friendly Canadians? Um, and do you think that was misplaced? Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think this is the great lesson for the Canadian military planners and and I think for the prime minister's office. Uh, out of this event is that if there is an assumption that because of our closeness as countries and because our militaries tend to operate uh, in tandem in many places, mm -hmm. I think there was an assumption that Canada could sort of knock on the door and say, hey, can you give us a hand here? Well, that didn't happen. I mean, most of the information that I was able to gather was that um, in that base, in that uh, airport in Kabul, 
that um, Canadians had made an assumption that the American uh, military would sort of take us under their wings and 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 give us a hand. But what ended up happening from my reporting is that no, the American military looked and said, where are your people anyway? Canada uniquely as a country had withdrawn 100% of its diplomatic staff and military attaches. So there were no Canadian representatives on the ground in Kabul when the evacuation plans were being formed by the American military. And we showed up a week later and said, hey, can, can you give us a hand here? And the answer was no. That, you know, um, and I think that tension was some of what I reported on. There was a day when the Canada's um, immigration ministry sent out texts to a bunch of the applicants to come out and said, you know, come to the airport, come to this particular gate. Um, and people did, and they risked their lives to get there because the Taliban at sure. that point had control of Kabul. Um, they made it through. They went to this area called a gas, a gas station just outside of the perimeter of the Kabul International Airport, and um, nothing happened. And it turned out what was going on was, you know, um, the American military and the CIA wanted that um, particular gate to pull a lot of their operatives through. Mm -hmm. And um, there must have been some sort of negotiation or arguing going on. But at the end of the day, those people who had been called to that gate to be put on planes, those planes uh, did not put those Canadian cases on. They put others on, perhaps. And those people were out in the open and um, in the desert without anybody talking to them for more than 45 hours. And those were families and kids. So there was, a, there was something going on inside there. And, and the assumption that I think Canadian planners had made that, well, the Americans will take care of us, turned out to be incorrect. And after that, they ended up trying to cooperate with the British uh, military at a different gate. And even that relationship frayed over time because Canada, frankly, didn't send very many people to advocate uh, on its behalf. Well, we've, we've seen somewhat surprisingly uh, in Senate testimony, some of U.S. military planners or Secretary of Defense saying that they had given President Biden different advice about keeping people on the ground. So you could certainly understand if the U.S. didn't have a very good plan for the evacuation for its own people, uh, it might not have had uh, a good plan for Canada. But at a certain point, uh, you would have thought Canada would have just because of close communication said, uh oh, this doesn't sound like the U.S. Uh, has this under control? Maybe we need a plan B. But it, but maybe that realization came so late that they were just scrambling at the end. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, anybody will tell you that if you have, you, you know, you you go into these situations with plan A, B, and C, and when plan A doesn't work, what's B and C? But Canada had assets that it didn't really bring to bear. Um, there was a lot of controversy around whether or not special forces, and there were some that were sent in there could go outside of the airport and conduct um, rescue missions um, through uh, armed convoys. Um, that did not happen. The American military didn't have that authority and neither did the Canadian. Others did, um, the Finns, the Brits, the, uh, the Poles, the French, they had those kind of reconnaissance. So they didn't, we, our government did not give authority to peers uh, for um, our military that was there, and there might have been at, at, at most 75 mm -hmm. um, to go out and grab people, although they, they may have done that for special special people who uh, were known to the Canadian government, but, um, but they didn't do it generally. 
And they also, I mean, there is an element of the Canadian military that is uh, trains and is created specifically for extraction missions. And that's what you, you mentioned in Lebanon sure. um, that was deployed in Lebanon. It does not appear to have been deployed in Afghanistan, that there was uh, a unit that was prepared to deploy, but the order did not come down. So, you know, uh, on the one hand, we relied on America, it seems, for the kind of support that typically Canadians get. But on the other hand, we committed the absolute bare minimum to this and did not enhance and, and ratchet it up um, at, at, at a time when it was clear that we could not rely, as we have in the past, uh, on the Americans to save our bacon on this one. I think that's a big takeaway for, for Americans because Canadians did trust us. And in terms of American leadership, uh, people's sense that the U.S. is um, you know, leader of the free world and so on is made up of a lot of impressions. But this was a powerful signal we might not be reliable. And I know your essay focused on the Canadian responsibility here. But I think for our listeners, you know, reflecting on how this reflects on us, um, I think, is an important takeaway. Yeah, there's, there's been a few things lately that make me wonder as a, as a journalist who's covered this relationship from both countries, um, uh, whether or not the, the relationship is as healthy as we have become accustomed to it being. And, and it's not only in, in the case of Afghanistan, it's um, uh, some of the alliance shifting that's going on currently with, you know, the new um, alliance uh, to counter China with Australia and the UK. Um, if if we believe uh, what we're hearing in Canada, that came as a complete surprise uh, to the Canadian government, to the uh, Canadian military and to our foreign affairs people as well. That's a major shift. And it, it, it suggests to me that conversations are going on in Washington uh, over the reliability of Canada as an ally. Um, and and I don't mean that to sound like we're not allies, mm -hmm. but, you know, um, we're, we seem to be being cut out of conversations that have to do with countering um, China. Mm -hmm. um, we seem to be um, in a position where, you know, the border uh, is not being resolved. Canadians still can't travel by land to the United States. Americans have been able to come into Canada for several weeks now. And, um, and there, there just seems to be either a lack of um, uh, conversation and communication going on, or uh, what I wonder about is, has the Biden administration taken a look at the world and are they creating alliances and, and trying to reorient their own foreign policy? Uh, and our countries like Canada, maybe France, maybe others, are, are, are they, finding out the hard way and, and in some ways a brutal way that, you know, the, the, the role and the relationship that we had coming out of the Second World War and coming out of that seems to be ending and uh, new alliances and, and our relationship with the United States, I think, seems to be in motion. And I think we need to accept that we can't be thought of, that we're not being thought of in the same way as we might have been thought of five years ago. Okay, this raises a couple of things, but I want to take on one in particular. Uh, because over the last couple of years, we've been talking about this notion of a safe third country, and we know that Canada's courts have invalidated the U.S. as a safe third country um, in some other situations. So what do you think 
Canada should have been thinking um, when it was managing the situation um, about bringing refugees out of Afghanistan? It was very strange. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Canada doesn't have the infrastructure that the United States or the UK has for third countries. We don't have bases that we can send people to. So it's it's a little more complex situation and discussion for Canadians. However, um, what what we did, what, what the Canadian government did was um, they downloaded the process of application and verification to people who were on the run. Most other countries um, said, you know, get on the plane, we'll deal with you either in a even either in a third country or or you know we'll deal with you um in our own country but keep you on a military base in our own country until we're sure you know everything's kosher and um what what canada did was like it's it's immig it's immigration department uh was tasked with being the lead agency so it did what it usually does which is you know set up a process but I had the very strong, and I wrote about it, the very strong sensation that the people who were driving the process were not anyone who had been to Afghanistan, who understood the unique problems uh, of Afghanistan at first. And so there were like crazy demands put on people to like, you know, um, uh, fill out very complex paperwork in English only in 72 hours and with biometric fingerprints with uh digital photos that had to be in color and and these were people who had been in the southern part of afghanistan in, in kandahar had left everything behind were on the run were in safe houses that the group i was part of had created in kabul to try to handle all the paperwork mm -hmm. and it just wasn't it just wasn't realistic i mean there was this one story that one of our people had which was insane it was at the airport and all of your listeners probably saw the chaos at the airport oh, but our group had to like find a color printer and carry it to the airport and set it up somewhere because a Canadian immigration official who was at the airport, and I think there was one, insisted that black and white printouts of things weren't 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 uh, acceptable to board the aircraft. You had to have it in color. So we went out and we found a place to buy a color printer, carried it to the airport. And, and there were multiple cases like that that just you just sort of went, are you kidding? You know, right. and right. Um, and that's unfortunately um, that's unfortunately it's gotten a little bit better in that, um, uh, you know, the process, uh, it sort of froze during the Canadian election because nobody wanted to make new policy. But we're even hearing it now. There's very few people getting across the land border on foot. Um, but one of the things we're hearing is, as soon as they come off, they've been you know on the road for two weeks is that they need to get a medical appointment, which is fine and understandable in Pakistan. But the approved doctor for that is in Islamabad. So somehow these poor people have to, who have entered in the south of Pakistan, have to find their way to Islamabad to this one mm -hmm. clinic that the embassy agrees to. Mm -hmm. And it's just the pro, it's just the bureaucratic process not getting swept away by leadership fast enough and just saying there's a target on their back. We'll deal with it in some other way. And so right. we're, we're still, as a country, we're still insisting that most of the paperwork be done uh, by people who are on their own. Well, you mentioned the election and really the evacuation from Kabul came right at the beginning of the Canadian federal election. And uh, but, you know, even so, even given that timing, uh, 
foreign policy, Afghanistan, and even the two Michaels, um, another foreign policy issue, wasn't really at the center of the Canadian federal election debate. So I guess a question that arises is, you know, Kevin, you've been working really hard on sounding the alarm and shouting from the mountaintops about not just foreign policy, but also in in development, foreign aid. Um, So do you think Canada now with the election in the rear view will be ready to turn its attention to these bigger global issues? Well, Canada is a country that hasn't done, hasn't had a major uh, security document created since 2004. Hmm. And the world has changed substantially. Hmm. Uh, We don't have a National Security Council uh, the way the American government has that can look at threats uh, before they are elevated. We we have a system that can respond quickly to threats at the mm-hmm. cabinet level. There's cabinet committees that are created, but that's after it's became a crisis. Uh, I, I've argued and, and, and advocated um, in print that it is time for Canada to consider a, an, an equivalent of the U.S. National Security um, Committee and to begin because things are changing, obviously. Uh, our alliances with the United States are changing. Um, you know, I, I think one of the reasons it wasn't as prominent as you and I might have hoped for in the in the campaign is it's not framed properly. Um, the the question of helping Afghanistan interpreters is important for the the Afghan interpreters themselves, but but it's really a question of um, national honor. That if you promise somebody that they're going to if if there are people out there that have helped you survive in their country then there is a question of honor about what obligation you have to them and for many years canada said none um if you look at the question of um covid and our preparedness for it that's something that a national security council could have spotted and 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 understanding that these are our priorities so i i I agree with you i think this country is long overdue for that kind of conversation around what are the national security priorities of Canada? And I think that begins with what is our position on the rise of China and doing business with them? And we we haven't had that conversation here. The Americans are making very bold and quick moves to sort of counter that and surprising Canada with them. And it's not only there, it's in the Arctic as well. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing that the Biden administration has prioritized the Arctic for its uh, for, and the UK at the same time is even offering, look, if you can't patrol Canada because you don't have enough submarines, we'll do it for you. You know, how important is the Arctic to Canada? At, at this point, there is no sort of strategic understanding of it, except from the Americans and the Brits. So, mm-hmm. yes, we, we, we need this done. And it, it's too bad it wasn't part of the conversation. But. You know, campaigns in Canada are very much like they are in the U.S. And, you know, they're micro targets. They're um, a a grab bag of um, small little micro targeted promises that can move certain groups of people. But the idea of vision and the idea of strategy, uh, unfortunately, increasingly is getting lost. Yeah, it's... uh... Well, it's understandable. I'm always reminded of uh, Kim Campbell's famous comment that an election is no time to talk about policy. But um, it was on, it was it was a gaffe. But it, it, there is some truth to it that it's hard to have a serious discussion of something that is so uh, epic defining as, you know, the rise of China and sort of in that context. But I was just surprised that it wasn't even 
there wasn't really even any reflection on it um, that I would have expected. But then I'm a nerd for it, so maybe. Too bad, because we do need a sense of what is the guiding principle uh, in, in in this decade of, of how Canada responds to um, developments around the world. And the answer is there is no guiding principle. There's just response. Yeah. Uh, that's, we, earlier this year, we were reflecting a little bit on the Korean War and this... Uh, and uh, had a discussion of sort of the forgotten war and the forgotten people who 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 fought in it because um, we'd had a big 70th anniversary of that conflict this was the biggest uh canadian deployment the longest canadian war really since world war ii um and uh it was a big commitment a, a commitment that changed over time under different leaders but it was quite a big commitment i'm asking you maybe to forecast maybe that's unfair but how do you think Canadians will remember this. Do they even remember, you know, the the fights in Kandahar and so on, or is that just something they saw on television once? Will this be the kind of thing that leads to war memorials and real a real commitment of the country to honor the people who served, but also the people who risked their lives and even the Afghans uh, uh, themselves? Well, um, I'm of a certain age now, and I'm reminded that for you know good numbers of Canadians, this is this is one of the wars in the history books. I mean, mm -hmm. I was able to cover it. It was a big part of, uh, you know, the last 20 years of, of my thinking as well. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I, geez, I, I, I don't know. I mean, we we have a lot of work to do um, in Canada in deciding what we want our military to be. Um, I find it surprising that our special forces um which are really well trained mm -hmm. and are respected worldwide are, are aren't given much to do um and and they you know they were on tra some training missions in iraq um uh, a bigger deployment of special forces to the kabul airport would have made a difference but they were not authorized mm -hmm. so there's a lot of thinking to do is like does canada need a special forces what should we just be, you know, do we need um, patrol aircraft? I mean, all these questions have just been mired in muck in Canada for so long yeah. um, that, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't have a lot of faith at this point that, um, that those big questions are, can be tackled um, and, and they need to be. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I think we're going to be continually surprised by other countries like the United States that are, are are making decisions and moving forward in their best interests. Um, you know, I, I might say that, you know, maybe, maybe maybe it's fine for Canada to say, you know, China's not our number one thing. Um, maybe it's fair to say that American foreign policy needs a bad guy and China's that bad guy and it's time for Canada to perhaps be a little more nuanced in its relationship mm -hmm. with China. That's all fine, but it would be good if if there was a discussion around that and 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 a body that could say okay if we're going to take a more nuanced approach to china then you know let's have the military there let's have the trade people there and let's let's act as a country on that uh, as opposed to yeah. you know watching others act and then responding to it absolutely well there there is an um a house and a house of commons and senate committee on national security designed to sort of take the the longer look and not let some of canada's key foreign policy decisions get caught up in the partisanship you know this was a conservative or a liberal uh initiative um maybe they'll take this up i know 
I know from my visits with Canadian students on different campuses that young Canadians have a great interest in the world and they're talking about these things and it you may say in an election, you know, there how many people vote on foreign policy? It's all domestic. But but I can tell you there are a lot of very smart young Canadians that I've met who really who aren't sure what the answer to the question is, but really want to engage in the debate. And and maybe that's the best place. You always sort of go, well, hopefully the young people will uh, uh, be different. But I, I think if if some of the opposition leaders had framed the Afghanistan experience as, you know, um, can we be counted on in the world? You know, and I think Canadians like to think, yeah, we're we're there for you. Like we'll 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 be there. And but uh, you know, the the truth of the matter is, quite often we're relying on others to, uh, and we'll and 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 we won't commit. I mean, Afghanistan was a commitment that the Canadian military made, um, and that Canada made, and and 158 Canadians paid the price for. And so, um, and I was always, it was interesting at the time I was the anchor of Global National in Canada and we did regular polling on how Canadians viewed the war in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And so we could look at that over, over several months and years. And, and the interesting thing was when the going got really tough, when there were lots of Canadian soldiers dying, trying to build roads in Southern Afghanistan, support for the war among the Canadian population went up. And that told me that, you know, um, we have a spine and our military history shows that we have a spine. It's a question of whether our leaders decide and choose whether to, um, you know, risk engagement. But, um, you know, Canadians as, as a people, I think, can be there. It's just it's just a question of making sure that if we are asked to be there, that the appropriate amount of thought, strategic thinking, and reason has been applied to it. Uh, I I really appreciate you sharing some time with us because this has been heart wrenching for Americans watching really a, a disastrous end to a long conflict that, for for many of us, goes back to nine eleven and that that we've had the twentieth anniversary of that. So this has really been ringing in our ears, and it's interesting to to listen to you about how Canadians are wrestling with this and how the, this affects Canada-US relations. Uh, Canadians' perceptions are maybe trust in the US and, and what we're always finding on Canusa Street is we're talking about Americans who've forgotten or don't know or haven't paid attention to what's going on in Canada. And this is a case of, of mutual dumbfoundedness at that. How did we let this happen? But I think if we can think about it together, maybe we can both come out, uh, you know, chastened but maybe strengthening our our friendship if we don't think about it together if we have sort of our separate grieving i don't think that's great for canada u.s relations going forward so uh the the candor that you've brought to this in the public sphere and in this discussion today uh really appreciate it okay thank you for the invitation anytime <laughs> anytime i mean let's hope it's not another disaster uh, i'll we'll keep watching for what you're writing so that maybe we can bring you on a happy story yeah. And I'll look for one. Yeah. Opening the Gordie Howe Bridge. Maybe we could do that. That'll be... <laughs> Gotta be something. Well, Chris, what, a, what an interesting discussion. And I'm so grateful that Kevin joined us to talk about you know, not just perceptions, but reality. You know, what's really happening in Kabul? What's really happening... Um, with the Canadian response and, and the U.S. response. So I'm, I appreciate the reality check, I guess, and, and I appreciate his advocacy on behalf of 
um, an issue that people don't want to think about every day. Well, it's true. And I, uh, what I really admire about Kevin is he's still a journalist. And so he can tell the story, both with the vivid anecdote and the hard facts, weaving them together in a way that's just so compelling. More than that, he clearly cares. You know, he's talking about working with veterans, trying to get people out. He's not just an observer. He's a participant observer. He's got his he's he's put in his stakes. He's trying to make a difference. And um, and that level of commitment is just it's rare in either country and really remarkable. Yeah, really. I, I agree. Good discussion. And, you know, the the other thing that just occurred to me listening to him is, you know, you know, I had a great opportunity to talk to our mutual friend, former U.S. Ambassador David Wilkins. He was U.S. Ambassador to Canada, um, appointed by President Bush. And one of the things that he observed when we were talking, you know, a few weeks ago, it was right when the Afghanistan pullout started. And, you know, he was talking about the role that Canada played in Afghanistan over the years and how it impacted other Canada US issues. And it sort of it gave Canada a calling card in Washington um, that Canada used on on again other things. So so in his example, he said, look, you know, um Prime Minister Harper at the time really wanted to get this softwood lumber dispute uh resolved. And you and I have talked about softwood lumber several times on Canusa Street. Right. And uh but but the reason President Bush, Ambassador Wilkins you know, boss was willing to do a deal, shall we call it, on a bilateral kind of commercial dispute like lumber, was that Bush was willing to do something for Canada um, because he was so grateful for what Canada had done for the world in Afghanistan. And so, you know, it's not, they're not directly related, they're not tied together, but Ambassador Wilkins was just observing that Canada has relevant, to the extent that Canada has relevance on the world stage, and is helping solve big global issues. It gives Canada more leverage on the bilateral things that it wants to solve with the United States or with other countries. So I think that's important to keep in mind, too. I do, too, because especially now, success has many fathers, failure, none. I, I think Canadians looking at the end of, of their involvement in, in Afghanistan on the other side of the Kabul evacuation will be asking themselves, was it worth it? Why were we there? What did we do? And, you know, this was a tragic ending. Did Could we have avoided it? It's important to remember that the reason Canada did it was not only to help the Afghan people, but it was also part of Canada's strategy, engaging with its neighbor, part of the Canada's relationship. It's very much a topical issue on Canusa Street. That's exactly right. And, you know, whether whether the issues are things like missile defense or mm -hmm. Arctic sovereignty or other big global issues, how to confront threats, uh, cyber threats that come from uh, state actors abroad. Like these are things that Canada and the United States, we, 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 in my opinion, here's my little plug, Chris, we've got to work together on these things. Canada has an enormously important role to play and its relevance uh, to the conversation um, is directly proportional to how much it leans in. Yep, I agree with that. All right. Well, more to follow on Canusa Street. It's good to good to be with you as usual, my friend. Uh, indeed. Thank you, Scotty. This was uh, this was another successful collaboration. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. <laughs>